Hello and welcome back to session, lesson, episode, <laughs> whichever one you want to call it. Six of the AWPT podcast nutrition series with Amy Needham. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm on a day two menses, exactly what we were talking about today. So um, can relate. Excellent. I'm super excited for this podcast because a lot of the previous sessions that we've done have been talking about what can go wrong with the menstrual cycle, issues with the menstrual cycle, um, you know, things that are going to contribute to potentially not optimal nutrition for females, which is going to lead to certain conditions. Today, I really want to focus on the good stuff, the performance stuff, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are super keen to be learning about as well. So we're going to be talking about performance. We're going to be talking about optimizing performance, optimizing health, um, optimizing our nutrition through certain phases of the cycle as well to be able to get the most optimal results for our clients and, you know, essentially the healthiest results for our clients. So we're going to be touching on all those things. We're also going to be touching on calorie deficits maintenance calories and calorie surpluses and when to use them for your clients so I'm really looking forward to chatting all about this so exciting um I think as well as like your menstrual cycle can be used as an ergogenic aid so it is something that actually empowers performance and whether that be mental physical and all those kind of things and like your daily life if used correctly the information can create so much more power and so much more progress physically and also in whatever career study pursuit that you have it's just understanding when to apply things and when to utilize different tools to I guess assist the areas where we might be a little bit slower a little bit more fatigued um, and yeah just understanding and incorporating those things totally and I love that you mentioned the mental side of things as well because women are cyclical beings we do experience this cycle we do have fluctuations of the menstrual cycle like that is not like bullshit it's not a myth like anyone out there who wants to dispute that you know women are the same as men like come at us because there have been some people in the industry saying certain things but we won't focus on them um let's focus on because the brain thing is so important as well like we can use this to really optimize how we work as well like mm -hmm. using that luteal phase where we take a step back where we put you know our foot on the brake a little bit to to get more a little bit into flow and creativity and things like that and when that estrogen is high and when that driver is going like that's when we do 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 and then using that luteal phase to to be more and to you know take a step back and and flow and be creative and all those sorts of things and you know that does as well like our mental health and our mental performance is also going to cross over into our physical performance too like you want to be switched on when you're ready to go for say whatever event it is that you might be competing for or competing in you know I think for my entire life because I grew up and I know you as well grew up as an athlete like mindset and visualization and you know being mentally prepared and on and all those tactics just made the world of difference in like my athletic career and, and the various sports that I played and I know for you as a as a competitive gymnast it was 
very similar. Mm. And I also think back to like having more estrogen younger that I'm like, maybe that's why I was so good. But also like your yeah, aging process and stuff like that too probably doesn't help. Um, but I think <laughs> the whole point of having the menstrual cycle does discount any argument to say that women can be the same as men because it's not. And it's not using it in a way which is like a negative. It's actually using it like you're a powerful fucking being who can create children and also use um, your ability to be cyclical to actually help you get further and to see things more uh, multifactorial than what I guess a male can and that's a benefit and using your intuition and everything else as well that comes with being female and using you know the fact that estrogen is actually in isolation which it never really is anabolic and it does help preserve muscle mass in dieting that's why women tend to lose less muscle mass in dieting because we do have adequate estrogen in there um, but knowing that like we're not going to get jacked off having estrogen because it never works in isolation there's always something there to counter same as in life there's always something there to counter I guess something positive is always going to be a negative and progesterone as much as it helps with I guess our mood and our happiness and everything else as well like it is catabolic in nature so estrogen being quite anabolic progesterone being quite catabolic and unless there is those little peak points where there's a little bit of isolation a little bit of domination like say estrogen dominance in more of a follicular phase, progesterone dominance more in a luteal phase. Not that estrogen isn't present, but just there's a greater amount of progesterone. It's being able to, I guess, distinguish the two. Um, but estrogen also does affect uh, um, the clotting factors in our body and also our plasma volumes. So this can be why, say, over ovulation, you get a little bit more swelling and bloating. Um, so although there's a stimulus for increasing fluid retention, there's no plasma space for this. And this is kind of what creates that fluidy, fluffy kind of look, you know? So, um, but it is a process remembering that ovulation is such a high energy demanding process. Um, you might feel a little bit like fluffy, but you're also capable of creating life really and maintaining it. Um, the other thing I guess to note specifically about ovulation is that estrogen does decrease or I guess slightly prior ovulation where you're getting your estrogen peak it does decrease our hunger um and it is kind of like a yeah like an appetite suppressant and I was explaining to one of my clients today actually looking at the menstrual cycle that you know the reason she's not hungry right now is she's at this phase pre pre-ovulation and the one thing her body is thinking about is babies <laughs> like it's not just yes. thinking about Sex. connection and intimacy <laughs> yeah like yeah. there is no like food like that like that the thing you know it's just like one track mind you know like it wants connection and it wants like bonding um and procreation so like there is going to be those periods where you're not going to have as much hunger and that like speaking of calories and things we're speaking about before like maybe you don't need a refeed at that time because you're actually satiated but at the same time knowing that estrogen increases our insulin sensitivity utilizing that towards like hmm okay well if it increases insulin sensitivity but also decreases our hunger and our appetite which part of my cycle, knowing that everyone's cycle is individual, is actually going to work best for a refeed or a diet break? Um, you want to, we want to look still the same as what a male would. You want to look at what you can be consistent with in a diet. Now, there are different factors in women of changing appetite regulation, energy utilization, and um, even just our recovery. It's like, when is it appropriate to actually 
refeed or diet break someone. And it also comes down to working with the individual in front of you. So just because they're female and just because they have a menstrual cycle doesn't mean at the same time in their period or in their menstrual cycle, in the phase of their cycle, that they're going to refeed or diet break at the same time. You still have to take in psychological aspects as well, how that person actually feels versus what you think their hormone balance is, is going to tell you. Um, but overall consistency, the same as male or female, is going to be the thing that generates results for fat loss and also for building muscle mass and consistency. Yeah, and as well, just on that point, also where your client is in terms of like how well do they do with their nutrition because you know it's all well and great to know that we have insulin sensitivity more insulin sensitivity in the follicular phase and more uh, insulin resistance in the luteal phase but then how well versed is your client at actually tracking how well versed are they at knowing their nutrition because you know, if someone is still not consistent with their nutrition just generally, then you're not probably going to alter too much to do with their macronutrients face to face. But if you have someone who's more advanced, and this is why I think all coaches should be educating their clients on like nutrition and what are in certain food sources and things like that, because then you can get to this point where it's like, okay, let's, let's tick off those one percenters now. Like, let's start getting a little bit more into the nitty gritty mm. to see how we can actually optimize your nutrition throughout, you know, different phases of your cycle, depending on how you feel. And of course, there are going to be other factors. It's not just the cycle that we're looking at. You know, we're going to be looking at, like you said, the nervous system. We're going to be looking at other hormones, leptin and ghrelin. We're going to be looking at that person's lifestyle as well what like where are they are they they do they have a competition coming up do they have a goal weight that they need to hit whether it's in a surplus or a deficit and how can we how can we just maximize performance in terms of like getting narrowing in on you know the things that are, are going to make those smaller changes once we hit those big rocks and once we hit that the low-hanging fruit which is super exciting because mm. it's it's also just going to be able to just see how we can how far we can go as human beings in terms of performance as well without having to potentially resort to other ergogenic aids that are not natural yeah um which is a whole nother discussion in itself. Yeah, like we have the ultimate ergogenic aid already. So, um, and I think as well, like educating on it, like is also allows women to stop seeing or females, I guess, to stop seeing their menstrual cycle as a burden. It's not, it's honestly your greatest gift to performance and obviously to your bone health and everything else as well. Like your estrogen and progesterone are both amazing. And there are, obviously there's many other hormones that they're the top two we focus on because they're the most predominant that we're looking at, I guess, in the menstrual cycle. Um, but even like, I guess, yeah, dispelling to stop seeing it as a burden and to start using it as a catalyst of positive change and to be able to influence and improve your, your adherence to your goals, um, I think is important. Not only that, like it also depends on the period of their life they're at. Like we're not going to have the same fluctuations in hormones and how we feel at every single stage. And even just looking at leptin and ghrelin and everything else as well, there is factors outside of the like menstrual cycle, which are still influenced. Like leptin is still influenced by estrogen. 
So our response is never going to be the same as a male's. But even looking, I guess, at different factors that women have that men don't, like if you're going through perimenopause, if there's menopause, even in adolescence, if you're starting to bleed, if there's more micronutrient deficiencies, if you're going more through frailty and elderly age, that you're getting more micronutrient deficiencies through pregnancy. You know, these are things that males don't have to deal with and that we do need to have a course specific to women to cater to these different life stages that they have. And obviously getting them to understand and be aware of their body that not all females are aware of the changes that occur during their cycle as well. So it's that awareness and non-judgment too. Mm, And then there is also the whole topic around hormonal contraception too, because a lot of athletes we see will take hormonal contraception to actually avoid getting their period on their competition date. And that can also hinder your performance as well. Like Mm -hmm. if you are giving yourself synthetic hormones, it's going to decrease, you know, um, I think there's been studies that say the hormonal contraception is going to decrease the amount of testosterone that you have as well, which Mm -hmm. we know that testosterone. Yeah. I mean, testosterone we know is like an amazing hormone because we see how well males do because they have so much more in it in in sports and therefore for you know decreasing that then also you know we're decreasing our ability to perform and getting your cycle when you're competing is not necessarily the worst thing in the world depending on how you experience your bleed of course but our hormones are stable then like nothing is fluctuating Mm. as soon as estrogen starts to rise we spoke about this a few podcasts ago but then we're going to see you know more energy as well during that follicular phase it might be to avoid that luteal phase but then again that's just like (laughs) unlucky timing I guess um but there might be just because yeah where might be certain sports where being in your luteal phase is better if you need to have you know, like better concentration or be more calm and things like that, then, you know, it's really dependent on your sport. And I think the thing to understand is there's never a bad stage in your cycle. It's just learning how to work with it. So like as soon as someone gets their menses, performance is completely enhanced. Uh, But that's not to say you can't use things like your omega-3s, baby aspirin, um, magnesium, zinc, stuff like that in your luteal phase if you know you're going to get your menses for a competition you're not going to have any symptoms if you continually work with your cycle like performance mm-hmm. like your training yeah it may take a little bit of like you may need to work around it but your performance shouldn't be limited by your menstrual cycle provided you know how to work with it and to enhance it based on what your body is telling you or what your the impact that your hormones and your menstrual cycle and other like mental aspects as well are having you just need to work with it like there's never a bad time like I've seen women especially compete in bodybuilding with their cycle and win. Like it, It's not a, a drawback, I guess, as well. Like it's knowing, I guess, how to work with it, which is the whole point of the course. Like if we were just telling you like, oh, this is a shit time, you're not going to do the mm. course because you're not actually going to learn anything to actually make it a better time, you know? Yeah. So we spoke about, you know, during that follicular phase, during the first phase of the cycle, we do tend to be more insulin sensitive and therefore we can respond better to carbohydrates. So during the luteal phase, what are some things that we can do to help enhance our performance um, nutrition wise? Yeah, so when in the high hormone phase, your estrogen is going to be inhibiting your body's ability to access glycogen. So it's kind of 
glycogen sparing. Um, but progesterone is also preventing you from storing glycogen. So it's a bit of a shit place to be in. It's like, oh, I can't store my glycogen. I can't really access it. So a lot of the training that we normally do is uh, like energy system wise would be carbohydrates. So if it's strength, power, sport, bodybuilding, all that kind of stuff is more, um, well, endurance would be a lot more depleting of glycogen. But if in those times where we obviously need adequate glucose for our red blood cells, for our nervous system, for our brain, and even just for recovery, um, it, it might be a little bit harder. So this is maybe more for endurance athletes who are going to burn through a shit ton of glycogen, um, knowing that we're going to be more utilizing fatty acids but harder to access our glycogen and also harder to I guess store it it might be utilizing more intra-workout carbohydrates and the importance I guess of having like post-workout carbohydrates too um yeah you just want to I guess time it around your training but being that I guess progesterone is also in the high hormone phase elevated, it inhibits the body's ability to put more glucose into the cell because it decreases the sensitivity of our, our GLUT4 um, or the ability of our GLUT4 glucose transporter to be activated by uh, insulin. So again, it's harder for your body to access carbohydrate and it's also harder for your body to put it back in. This is another reason why carbohydrate loading in the high hormone phase um, doesn't necessarily work um, or you need to pay more attention to what you're eating during and after training and things like that. More for endurance athletes who do burn through, I guess, a lot of glycogen. Um, but it is something to be aware of that, you know, luteal phase training, for one, never going to training fasted. That is my top rule um, yeah. in any phase of your cycle. Um, women just perform better fueled. Um, but yeah, especially luteal phase when there is that inability to access your glycogen and to, and to help restore or, or replenish. Yeah, intra-workout carbs and post-workout carbs might become a little bit more important. Yeah, and I think it's also super interesting to note that during the luteal phase, because progesterone is higher, it does increase our core body temperature increases our metabolism then we can eat more like we can eat a little bit more like not like heaps and heaps more but like it's why we experience cravings is because our energy expenditures increase so our leptin levels have decreased which is why we have those cravings so thinking that you know if you are dieting and you keep your calories the same let's say during that luteal phase it can be actually a really good dieting tool because if our energy expenditure is increasing but our calories are staying the same then we're essentially putting ourselves into like a slight deficit or depending on where we are where we're eating less calories than we would normally be through that follicular phase mm. whereas you know, if someone does experience those cravings, then it's okay to eat more because we're actually burning more. And so then you're just saying at your maintenance or wherever you kind of are in, in um, your cycle and, and with your diet. So, yeah. And like, it's, it's always going to be blood sugar management, right? Like the number one thing most people crave is chocolate, right? But chocolate is fatty acids, which we're actually using in our luteal phase or generally when we're not training anyway, like so we're using fatty acids and it also is kind of like if you have it after a meal, you've kind of got some blood sugar balance by having your protein, fats and carbs and stuff, everything present. So like it's not I'm not saying that you go up to 3000 calories or something if you're in a dieting phase. It just means that you might be able to have an extra 150, 200 calories. And it's not a specific number because the way my body increases metabolic rate during my luteal phase, if I should probably add this in, if I ovulated. 
if yeah. there was no anovulatory phase, right? So it's it's like if they and again, not everyone knows if they ovulated, they don't always get the temperature rise, they don't always get discharged, stuff like that. Like if you're not getting that, you're maybe not ovulating. Um, you know, it isn't if you ovulate, but my I might only get a three percent increase, you might get a five percent, someone else might get a ten percent, you know, like it's a range, mm. but unless we tested specific women, you don't know the exact amount, but typically it's 150 to 300 calories. So that could be a chocolate bar that you have like in your mid afternoon and go for a walk with your insulin sensitivity, whatever it is like to, I guess, allow one, a mental break, but also to acknowledge that, you know, what you're going to do is normal and how you're feeling is normal. But I guess the other thing, as I spoke about before, is that lessening your symptoms of say like premenstrual, the biggest, one of the biggest ones is omega-3. So maybe you've always had white barren Monday fish and chicken or whatever. Maybe in that luteal phase, you have a giant piece of salmon that you've been craving because mm. the omega-3 is, um, you know, like that is a high calorie food. And normally in dieting, that is one of the first things to kind of go is as high calorie, even nutrient dense foods. But that might be a good time to pop that in because like your omega-3s will help with any um, inflammation and they prevent like your, um, any pain, um, you know, along with magnesium and zinc. And you could have a look at magnesium and zinc and omega-3 rich foods and maybe have a little bit 150 300 calories extra per day on the foods like that so you're only eating from a mental aspect but you're eating from a nourishing aspect where you're going to prevent pain right and i think that's one of the best things is that like if you can prevent feeling like shit that's your whole purpose is to prevent feeling like shit so you can perform well yeah that's it's perfect right like the pieces of chocolate it just it's too perfect right we've got magnesium in that if you choose <laughs> if you choose dark chocolate as well you got the magnesium so it just seems perfect like chocolate was just made for us in our, our luteal phase right um you also mentioned something really interesting there you were talking about you know not only changing the white fish for the salmon which is going to you know help increase the the fats but it's also going to help with satiety as well because the Mm. the fattier fish is going to also help satiety um and food rotation so Mm. important let's talk a little bit about food rotation now because i don't think we've mentioned it in any of our previous podcasts but food rotation super important for gut health as well so Mm -hmm. um having that diverse microflora in your gut is going to allow um, your gut to to basically thrive better, which is literally like your gut. They say it's your second brain. It's probably your first brain because it has such an effect on your brain. Um, but yeah, how important is food rotation when it comes to to optimal health and performance? Oh, extremely. Even if looking at, I guess, uh, synthesizing nutrients coming through our gut and stuff as well, and also in our large intestine and everything else but it's also uh, estrogen management, right? Like the bacteria that we have, one vaginal microbiome, also a microbiome is also going to influence. So the quality of our microbiome setup is going to influence our hormone balance, which is why say someone with endometriosis, they do have to look more at their fiber makeup, what they're having, if they're supporting GI distress issues, et cetera, as well. So um, I always, I guess, explain it to a client like, variety essentially the spice of life but you never want a an apartment garden worth of microbiome or bacteria because that is very small population we want an entire rainforest and that comes from food rotation and having like variety in our diet and that's not to say you have to have 40 like I think the goal that I give them which is by the way never I don't know if it's achievable if anyone can do it it's probably a vegan but it's 40 plant types 
in a week, right? Like that's a goal. So um, you can actually search it. I'm pretty sure you guys will be able to find it if you're listening. It's like like a, I don't know, plant 40, some challenge. Um, <sighs> gut 40, gut 40, I think it what it is. But um, yeah, it's just having a variety and like having different types of plants and fibers and resi- uh, resistant starches so as well. It helps to build a really healthy f- thriving microbiome and your gut does affect your brain and how you think and, and your hormones and your digestion and obviously your synthesis of nutrients and your predisposition to obesity, right? Like a, we always want to, we always want good and bad bacteria. Like we want both. We don't necessarily want a growth of an overgrowth of either, but we want to balance between the two. So, um, there is no bad food. You just want to have a rotation of a variety to create a healthier microbiome. And yes, there are foods that may support more good bacteria and others that may support more bad bacteria for lack of a better word. Like that's not to say they're good or bad. We just, the balance may be a little bit off. So say more sugary foods might promote more firmicutes and more bad bacteria, right? Like, and they are the ones normally associated with obesity or what they find in obese patients. That's not to say that bacteria did that. There's just an imbalance there. Um, but there are certain microbes that create more energy extraction from food and you can be become a more uh, efficient uh, person um, due to the, the gut microbiome setup. Like the, your extraction of calories is more efficient. Now, someone who is more efficient on calories is going to be someone who gains weight quicker versus someone who is inefficient. Um, and this is, you know, not to put people in somatotypes or anything like that, but I'm, I'm quite sure your gut microbiome would it be affecting, well, it would be affecting your energy extraction. And we always want to be, you don't want to be completely inefficient and you like can't put it on muscle mass, but you also want to have a gut microbiome which supports what you're doing. And if it is lean mass gain and if it is fat loss and if it is like positive mental health and, you know, a healthy hormone balance, like that's what you want to strive for. And that comes from food rotation and having variety in your food. Um, it's not to say you have to have so many things in one day, but, you know, over the month, try different things. Like don't get stuck in the same chicken and veggies and salad and stuff that you normally do. Try different foods. And also that also allows for more micronutrient variety too. Like if you've never had organ meats, try it. It's one of the most micronutrient rich sources you can have. If you've never had oysters or you've never had, like I tried a bug for the first time a few months back. I've never had a Sydney bug. Um, but, you know, try different foods and be open to it because it's going to give you more micronutrient diversity and it's also give you more, more microbiome diversity too. Yeah. Is it a thing where if you if you do stick to certain foods and certain food groups that you can give yourself a food intolerance? Is that a thing? Um, okay. So I spoke to one of my lecturers about this too because I was like, I've heard that it's three months that if you have exposure to, say, chicken, for a long period of time that you can create a, a reaction, right? Um, asked him and he's like, that's completely untrue. So as far as I know, it's completely untrue. If anyone has evidence to say otherwise, I'm open to it. Uh, but I think what can happen, even if it's just you have a hyper, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Like a, a lack of a leaky, leaky gut, essentially, or like more, um, what is what I'm looking for? Hyper uh, permeability. Um, Permeability, thank you so much. If there is hyperpermeability and your immune system is getting attacked, it's obviously going to look at like foreign bodies if there's food particles going through and those food particles might be something you're eating frequently. That is one link I can potentially see, um, but there's nothing proven as far as I know. But in this, in saying that, if you're reacting to a food and you individually are reacting to a food and you take it out and you stop reacting yeah, you might need to take it out for a while and then reintroduce it when like either you have less 
uh, immune reaction to it or you have a um, healthier gut lining as well. Yeah, and I loved what you said before about the effect of the gut on um, like mental performance as well. So most of our serotonin, correct me if I'm wrong, is made in the gut or just outside the gut. Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of our neurotransmitters made in the gut. Um, I want to give you the exact stats, but I don't have them, but I can do a post on it. Um, so I think that's, um, my boyfriend called it an accountability post. Like if I don't know something, I'll get back to you and I will post it up. But yeah, a large percentage of our neurotransmitters are created in our gut. So we know that that microbiome does affect that brain balance as well. And I know they've done studies into um, the microbiome of depression, right? Um, and I, I believe I have a study on that. So uh, that was what one of my lectures gave me. It was a microbiome of depression, right? Um, I'll find it. I'll, I'll do a post on it. But we know that, yeah, our mood is affected so much so by what we're eating, what we're consuming, and the makeup of our body. A really good book on that would be Gut by Julie Anders. Um, so, yeah, that is definitely a top fave. And that kind of goes through everything of, like, your neural setup, um, your energy extraction, your predisposition to different illnesses and stuff like that too. So highly recommend reading, but accountability moment, you know, I guess in this podcast is I'll find that study and I um, will do a post to put it on my story. Yeah, perfect. I love that. And also like, what was I trying to, so I was thinking it gives a whole different meaning to the word brain food, right? Like are there specific foods that we can eat that will enhance you know, our brain power, or is that just like, like a, a total, you know, cliche kind of like a clickbait thing? No, no. <laughs> myelin, myelin wise, like you got to remember information wise and omega-3 preventing inflammation. If we have inflammation on the brain, that's also when we see things like dementia and brain fog and all that kind of stuff. So having omega-3 rich foods really helps having B vitamins as well, being like energy extraction and, um, also allowing that energy extraction to work is obviously going to help immune wise having zinc to prevent you know any issues or cognitive issues is also going to help but you always want to look more for like your polyunsaturated fatty acids your omega-3s as being the helper but then there's no micronutrient or essential nutrient that isn't needed for that because our, the whole point of evolution is that our brain works well and that's because we have essential amino acids and everything else and essential um, micronutrients. So I think the biggest fallacy that I see is that people see like as much as fatty acids are important for brain health and omega-3s, it doesn't mean throw out carbohydrates because I'm only going to eat fats because you got to remember our nervous system, our red blood cells and our brain solely rely on glucose. So if I'm only having fatty acids and they're having to go through gluconeogenesis or extracting the glycerol off a triglyceride to get a glucose, that's actually more of an energy taxing thing. So I'm not saying you only need to just eat salmon and polyunsaturated fatty acids and just fuel yourself in that way. I'm saying you need that and also the, the, the glucose, but that glucose comes from a stable blood sugar. So having say your sweet potato, having your avocado in a meal and stuff with your protein, it's going to give you blood sugar balance, but it's also going to provide the raw ingredients of your glucose and also your omega-3s and as well as your your B vitamins and your zinc and your magnesium and everything else to function well. So I think sometimes we want to look for the hard and fast, like this one thing, but we are never a one thing kind of creature. Like we are a multi-dimensional peak creature and we can't just get everything 
unfortunately, I think, and even in some of my previous days, I would have liked to think that a certain sachet or a tablet would be exactly mm-hmm. what I need for the day. And then I can never be hungry and spend my entire day working. Like, it's just not realistic. And it doesn't work in our society either, given that we are a very foodie culture and community is also by eating. Yeah, plus food is life. We can and also that, food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, the breaking bread, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, food is important for your overall health. Food is important for your gut health. Food is important for your mental health, but also for your emotional health, right? Like for your, for your social health, your relationships, like the way to the heart is through food for me, especially. Yeah. And then through your senses too, right? Like the, you know, the feeling of nostalgia, so when your gustatory system and your olfactory system, so your, your sense of smell and your taste, when they combine, they store memory, right? So this is why when you smell your mom cooking your favorite meal and you taste it, it tastes better, right? Because the smell and the taste is what reminds you of a memory and that memory is happy. So it's, um, I feel bad for like my boyfriend who can't actually smell. <laughs> um, I'm like, I wonder if we never get memories from food. Um, but, you know, it is, it is our memory and and like it is a part of breaking bread community and it's how you build connection with others and yeah it is why that your mom's rose tastes better than anyone else's even if they use the exact same food like it's different um and it is associated with a memory from like childhood or wherever it is and it's the same reason some people can't smell or look at certain foods because it reminds them when they were drunk when they were 18 whatever it is like you know like oh that's tequila definitely feedback oh that's so interesting tequila is my main yeah. the one thing i probably can't do is like oh what's the one you used to drop the red bull Midori. in drink oh the Jager. no oh yeah Midori. the jager bombs yeah that was way too um, or maybe actually no i can never do beer beer is just a strong note oh, yeah booty nights and i've never drunk beer but i just don't even like it um Melted no that that's that's so funny because back when i had covid so i had the og covid back in like November 2020 when I was in Canada and I lost my taste and my smell and I was eating fish and I don't even eat that much fish like I'll eat raw salmon but I would never eat cooked fish and I was just eating like fish my apartment probably stunk but I couldn't even smell it so yeah it's just it's that just so maybe funny that's how what connected I need. it is well I never <laughs> so you don't eat yeah, I don't eat, I don't like seafood because I don't like the smell, right? And it makes me want to gag. But um, I'll eat raw salmon like you and I'll eat raw tuna or kingfish, all that kind of stuff. But I can't do the cook and the squishiness, the texture thing. But because um, I never lost my smell in COVID, maybe I should have because then I would have eaten more omega-3s. Um, well, but I again, totally, my workaround is supplement. Yeah, I, I totally lost my appetite. And I just like lost like a whole heap of weight as well because I just didn't feel like eating anything because there was just no enjoyment to it, which is actually really sad mm. because it's so enjoyable. I think it's funny because it definitely gets a point like um, like if I've done a building phase and you know when there's so much food and I never thought I'd be someone to say this, but um, at the time because I had been uh, dieting for a really long time and then I revet like eight more calories. A, like a, It wasn't even that much. It was like 2,600, which now I'd be like... <laughs> so small um but um I remember feeling over full from food and I was like this is just not enjoyable where food no longer literally has its appeal because you're just like it mm. feels gross like I feel like I'm stuffing myself like and I feel like well there's probably a lot of women on who are listening to this who've never felt that 
like they've always been dieting or aiming to diet, right? So, and the most amount of days they've had of high might be two to three days or, um, you know, infrequent of say 1500, next day 3000, next day 35, next day 1200 calories. Like um, when you consistently eat at such a high amount, you build that craving to want to eat less. And I think when we're speaking about when's the appropriate time to diet, it's that. If you've done enough of maintenance that you're like, food doesn't bother me anymore. I don't crave, like it is what it is. I'm eating at baseline or above and I'm no longer enjoying things and I'm actually craving the push of dieting and I'm craving the the need to eat less and, and not be as full. I'm not saying stuff yourself. I'm saying eating at baseline or in a very slight surplus because as I said, estrogen does prevent muscle loss and also helps us gain muscle. So we don't need as much as a surplus as men. Um, unfortunately, I would love to say that we also need to bulk in the same way that men do who are in, mm-hmm. unable to build calves or whatever it is. But um, it's just not true. It's the calves. <laughs> but it's always the calves that go to. Um, but yeah, like I, I would love to say it's not true. Well, it is true that we can't build the same amount of mass in the same amount of time, but we are very efficient at putting on body fat, which is why we don't need as long a surplus and we don't need as great a surplus as a male, but we still need it. Um, or we still need like at least maintenance or baseline being able to build muscle mass there. And unless you have gone through an entire, like at least six months or so, ideally yeah, of eating at, at maintenance and baseline, I don't think you're ready to diet because you don't know what normality and, and, yeah normality with food and I guess satiety and your your body's feedback is like you don't know it so Mm. like it's not a position to know what normality is or the your actual satiety response is from food like if you don't know it then you you aren't prepared to be in a phase where you are already going to disrupt your satiety signals or you're already going to disrupt your association with food being restriction so um when you're speaking about yeah when is it an appropriate time to diet i think it's that feeling i think it's that feeling when food doesn't bother you you know you and i'm saying food doesn't bother you in a way that you're not hungry but also that you know you're eating enough because i know there's people out there who are like oh i ate 1500 doesn't bother me food doesn't bother me that that's not the person i'm talking to i'm talking to the person who's willingly put themselves at baseline stuck there for a while regulated their hunger and satiety worked out what the feedback is with food what foods are they like what foods they don't and being at peace i guess without food obsession and built enough muscle mass then you're ready to diet you know mm. like i think sometimes we jump into the diet when really we should start at baseline yeah and so you said they're like spending around six months at maintenance or in a surplus how long do you recommend and i know it's probably going to be very contextual. Um, how long do you recommend someone should be in a deficit for, like maximum? Mm, normally I would say, well, it depends on someone's response in the body fat, right? Like the greater the body fat, the greater satiety signals you have, the greater the leptin. And typically our menstrual cycles are going to be leptin-based. Now, it would previously in my old teachings, I'd say 12, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever it is. But like that doesn't include obviously refeeds and diet breaks and stuff in that time, right? But you've also got to remember that women's leptin levels drop 20% faster than men's and men's can drop 50% within a week of caloric restriction, right? So if we're dropping 20% quicker, the periodization of our nutrition is always going to be different. So we're always going to need more frequent refeeds and diet breaks, but the greater the caloric restriction, the greater the depth of the restriction and the greater the duration, the faster our leptin will drop. Even though we start with greater leptin levels because we have more body fat, we also drop quicker. Like it's a mechanism in our body to for better energy utilization and um, energy control, I guess. Um, so 
I like you could do essentially, you know, six months of attempting to diet, but having periods of diet breaks and refeeds, but it all depends on, I guess, your total body fat percentage you have, how much you're willing, you're wanting to lose. But I always say that slow and steady is always better. You're better to do a moderate deficit and have more frequent refeeds and diet breaks than you are to go aggressive um, and, and then try and just make up and go straight back to baseline. Because as we know, women are more uh, fat storage and um, fat storage based, but we're also more um, anti-fat burning, like we're less lipolytic, like we're not going to um, have more lipolysis or fat burning than a male, but we're also going to be more likely to have more fat storage. So um, we also would have more metabolic adaptation knowing that there is a greater drop in leptin in women than there is in men. Um, so these are all kind of factors that like, I talk about stuff in the course as well, is that like it's understanding what that female needs, understanding her physiological differences, working with the client in front of you, not just by a textbook of what I'm telling you. Um, yeah, and I guess working from, from there and knowing like I always look at more like measurements and, and how they look in photos versus how um, whatever they're, they're weighing. Yeah. So then what are your thoughts on carb cycling for women if as a tool to use instead of having those more frequent refeeds and diet breaks um unless so basically if it's a one day high day we might get a slight increase in metabolic rate but it'll come back down the full restoration needs to be at least two to three days consistent eating high so if you're say you've got one day in your calorie cycling you've got one day at um, I don't know, 2,400 calories, you've got adequate carbohydrates or high carb and low fat that day. But then the next day is your moderate day and the next day is your low day and the next day is your high day. You're actually not getting your uh, your partial restoration of leptin or other hormonal markers or increasing your thyroid hormones. Um, but you, you might be getting a psychological break from that day, but it's not going to um, create the response we want to prevent or to have more muscle mass preservation, to increase our metabolic rate, to help with our like um, thyroid function as well. Like it's not actually, it's, it's, for, it's fancy. Basically if a coach gave a female client carbohydrate cycling, even if they gave a male client, um, other than trying to look like you know something when you don't, it actually does nothing. So from a psychological perspective, having one high day, sure. Like you, and again, as we spoke about, like the time in a female cycle, that glycogen loading may not even happen. Like all that, that glycogen replenishment that may not happen. So utilizing a tool for the sake of using, utilizing a tool is negligent because you actually don't understand the mechanism. So whereas utilizing something like a diet break or um, to say seven to 10 days or a refeed of say two to three consistent days to so 24 to 48 hours. Of, so yeah, at least two days, I would say at least two to three days. So 48 um, 36 to 48 hours you know that's at least doing something but doing something for the sake of doing something to make it look like you're doing a job when you're not is like irrelevant like it actually doesn't do anything aside from maybe a mental break if someone's like I got a high day and I get hungrier on my leg day so I'm going to eat more sure but you're not preventing I guess metabolic adaptation you're not helping low glycogen you're not helping to partially restore leptin other hormonal markers or you know improve our our thyroid like you're not doing any of that so it just seems like fluff and it seems like doing something for the sake of doing something with no real intention or understanding behind it and so then if two to three days is what we're kind of looking for would you do that weekly would you 
say have like your five days, like your five days low and then potentially like the weekend as a refeed, like which is pretty much what most people do naturally anyway. Which is is the natural. I think people do that naturally, but they don't necessarily do it with carbohydrates. They do it with fats and carbs and maybe low protein. Like it's the pizza, it's like the chocolates, it's like, you know, the tacos and stuff like that. And I'm not not knocking those foods. I think they're great. Um, But it needs to be intentional. So it needs to be more like um, as much as so postprandial, like right after eating, our biggest response of leptin is normally from from glucose sources, right? So carbohydrates, um, not so much from fats. So that's why normally a refeed you'll find that it is more carbohydrate high and and low fat, um, and with moderate or ample amounts of protein because you always want to have space for carbs being the predominant feature because they're the ones that are actually going to give us even if it's postprandial like initially. Um, when they've done studies in, in leptin, it is more glucose derivative kind of like response. Um, so yeah, that's why it's not like I'm just doing a weekend diet because like if the weekend means pizza and tacos and chocolates and that's high fat and like, you're not getting ample glycogen or ample carbohydrates, like, and you're getting above like a fat percentage, that's probably not a refeed. That might be that you plan in to have a high day and you accommodate for that throughout the rest of the week by maybe dropping calories back 20 to 40 calories per day you know that might be okay like that might work well but it's still not um a planned refeed which is more nutritional periodization and even though overall caloric balance of two to three days is the biggest signal to leptin i'm just if i'm looking from like a uh, devil's advocate standpoint like i'm also like yeah but it's not high carb like if you want to throw everything out preventing metabolic adaptation preventing muscle loss and or helping to retain lean body mass in the dieting phase and you need to go at it in a way that is going to be optimal yeah perfect and then also like if i've, I've just forgot my question so if we're looking at that you know, that weekend, let's say, refeed, is there a particular time that is better to do that? Is it better to do it on a day that you're training? Is it better to do on a day where you're not training or it doesn't matter? Um, To be honest, like this might be more like my experience, not necessarily like uh, research-based. In someone who is highly strong, who we know that high amounts of cortisol also prevent glycogen uptake, and, and utilization, right? So if someone is highly strong and they have a high amount of cortisol in their system, me loading carbohydrates, yes, it will dampen the, the cortisol response and it might calm them down a little by having carbohydrates, help them sleep, et cetera. If they're not able to utilize those carbohydrates efficiently due to the high amount of cortisol in their system, then it's probably not going to work. Um, I find that I the days I want to refeed someone is a day that they are calm. And the same way that if, not that I would, but say if there was a client that was intermittent fasting, you say they're male. I always want it done on a day which is low stress because we know that fasting, especially maybe more in women, is more a sympathetic state. So why would I put that on a day which is already stressful? The same way that if someone has high uh, cortisol or more of a highly strong person and they're training and that increases their body's physiological kind of stress, um, then adding carbs in in an area where they're not, relaxed is probably not smart like I don't think it really matters what day you have it on but it's more like I guess the mentality behind it because you can give one client food on a training day and mentally she's okay with it because she's like well for whatever reason I'm earning this and I feel like I'm utilizing this food and I'm going to be hungrier even if it's just a hunger satiety response they know that in that time they're actually going to be 
hungry. So yeah, sure, I'll take more food. And then you've got other clients that if I gave them a refeed on a rest day, they might freak out. Like they're like, oh my God, this is so much food. I barely moved today, et cetera. It all depends on someone's like psychology and their experience as well as their, their body's makeup and setup. But there'll be others who are like, oh my God, I get to refeed on a rest day and I, all I have to do is my steps. Amazing, this feels like a little reward um and it feels like a treat that I get to recover and look after my body and nourish so um typically I normally would put a refeed over a weekend just because like mentally they have more time to prep and if someone is at work they don't always have time to eat the quantity that I want them to eat um and also they might want to make and it's always better that you make the food because like you're the one controlling the fats and stuff in it as well but it might be that they make a giant like spaghetti bolognese with like low fat I don't know, cottage cheese or with like um, no cheese at all and like more of a tomato-based kind of pasta or it might be that you get everyone over for a chicken and veggie stir fry with a whole bunch of rice but you cooked it so you know it's like a lower fat version and you get to entertain and as you were saying before like it is a social thing being able to share food with people so um, that's normally why I'd place it over on a weekend but then there's others who don't really have time to eat on a weekend because they're running around after the kids and I might put their refeed during the week so um the answer is it depends as a really good scientist person would tell you (laughs) well that is a really good point to end on it depends because literally everything depends like and this is why it is so important to educate yourself on these certain topics because it's not just like you can't take this information from this person on instagram that said one thing right? Like this person said this, so this means it must be true for every single situation. That's not how it works. So it is really Mm -hmm. important to understand the ins and outs, to understand context, to understand your client, and then make the best informed decision for the particular case in front of you, which is exactly what we're going to be doing in female-specific nutrition evidence-based practice so we're combining the research we're combining anecdotal evidence of you know both of our professional experience over our probably 20 year combined Mm. uh, probably 30 years combined like probably longer yeah yeah I've been 15 years yeah we're getting close I think mine's like 12 now 12 and a half all right so we're just going to say collectively 25 to 30 years in in health and fitness industry um yeah come join us we start next week so um make sure you jump in the price is going to be going up as soon as we start so make sure that you jump in before next week we are starting next tuesday so today's wednesday the 14th of september so little less than a week away we're going to be starting our female nutrition specific course industry first industry changing um yeah we would love for you guys to be a part of it if you feel drawn to do that um amy thank you so much this is likely maybe we'll see going to conclude our nutrition series of podcasts which i absolutely love ending on this note um i'm super excited for this i'm super excited to be bringing this course to awpt and to the fitness industry with you i think you know you are going to be the perfect person to be delivering this course and yeah I'm just so excited so thank you for coming oh you're so welcome I can't wait